today. Uh, our text is going to be found in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. Uh, so if you don't mind turning there with me. Uh, we also, if you don't have a Bible today, have some hardback black ones in the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, the text will be found on page 977 in those Bibles. Uh, and if you don't own a Bible, we just consider that a gift for you today. We'd love for you to have it, keep it, and love it. So um, once again, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And if you're able this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Okay, Ephesians two seventeen. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who who were near for through him we both have access to one spirit to the father so then you are no longer strangers and aliens but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of god built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets christ jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the lord In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Morning, everyone. I want to welcome you here. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, I just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you're here and that you made us a part of your week. Uh, We'd love it if you would consider getting connected here. If you don't have a home church, we'd love for you to consider Providence to be that. Uh, We're going to be kicking off a new mini-series entitled The Church, The People of God, and The Pillar of Truth. And uh, we're just going to be talking a little bit over the course of the next four to five weeks in the month of August about uh, what the church is, uh, who who we're called to be by God, uh, how uh, we are called to function and operate together, and why it matters. And just kind of sifting through that, we've been... Uh, This year, kind of on a kingdom theme, we talked through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God coming to earth. And then in the summer, we did some heart work talking through the different kings of the Old Testament, David and Solomon, and the the emotions of the Psalms and the wisdom of the Proverbs. And uh, over the course of the month of August, I'm hoping to talk a little bit about the church. And it just so happens that this this week is also, um, tomorrow is seven years from our very first information meeting at Providence. And so uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, you can give a hand clap for that. Um, and so it just so happens we're going to be talking about the church. And it was, uh, as I was studying, as I was kind of looking at the calendar, I thought, oh, that's awesome. And it was really important for me personally as I prepared to really go back and as we talk about the church, why in the world would anyone, this is the question, want to plant a church? <laughs> why in the world would it? Because here's what we have found through planting Providence. We started with around 12 people. Uh, 12 and a half people, I think there was a baby there, uh, or a dog or something, and um, not that those are the same. All right, I'll continue. And, and uh, we, we prayed in my living room, and here's what we found about church planting. It is very difficult, <laughs> very tough. Uh, I spent a lot of years in student ministry and in college ministry and young adult ministry, and, uh, and it's just totally different than planting a church. Many times I would find myself in, in student ministry, uh, we used to throw these big evangelistic events called the awakening and we'd have thousands of people thousands of young people that would come in and you preach the gospel and uh, people were uh, I remember at one point we we did um, the last year that I was a student pastor we did it at Turner Stadium here in Humble and uh, we had like 5,000 young people there uh, hearing the gospel preached and then they lining up on the track and we were baptizing kids and I remember thinking this must be how John the Baptist felt 
just kids lined up. You're just dunking them, go on, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and then going into church planting, and that didn't happen. Like, like there was never like a time where somebody was like lining up to be baptized. It was, it was actually the exact opposite. It was like a lot of opposition, a lot of difficulty. The very first information meeting we had, uh, got everything set up. We're gonna get together and invited a lot of people to hear about the vision of the church. We, had a, we didn't have an enclosed trailer at the time. That tells you a little bit about our budget. We just had a flatbed trailer that I borrowed from my father-in-law. And uh, we packed all of our uh, equipment in it. And, and guess what it did that night, just like Houston always does? It poured down rain. So I remember I had like, I l- tried to look like I had some semblance of like uh, attire and I was ready to go and I was gonna be sharing the vision of the church. And then it just poured down rain as I'm packed. So I'm just soaking wet, pouring, putting music equipment in the back of the trailer and then getting it there and then setting it up. And then I remember driving really fast back home, putting on like my second button-up shirt I owned and then going back to talk about the life of the church. And, and that was kind of the, the cadence that church planning took. Lots of hard and arduous work of trying to share the vision of, of what the church of the living God is meant to be and why the, the gospel is important enough. And so what I want to talk about this morning uh, from the scriptures is what is the church? Why does it matter? Why is it significant? Why should, like we at Providence, we take 10% of our budget every single year and we try to invest it in church planting. Why? That's a pretty significant amount of our budget. Why would we do that? Why is it important? I want to try to answer that question this morning from the scriptures. And so before I do, I'm going to read one quote and then I'm, I'm going to kind of jump into the book of Ephesians. There's an Anglican priest uh, by the name of, I think his name is Nicky Gumbel, and he said this about the church, which I really love this, this line. He says, the church is not an organization to join, but it is a family to belong to. The church is not an organization to join, but it is a family to belong to. And Paul is going to make the case throughout the New Testament in all of his letters. I don't know if you know this, but every one of his letters is either written to a leader of the church or written to a church, a family, located in a specific place at a specific time. So your Bible is not written to individuals unless those individuals are a part of the whole. And that whole is the family of God, that Jesus, when he came to earth, not only died for individuals, I'm not trying to take that away. C.S. Lewis actually has this really great line of if you were the only person in the whole world, Jesus still would have died for you. That's the love of God for you. However, Jesus didn't just die for you. He died for a people, a family, his church. He died that we would be together. And so what I want to do is talk about why is that family so significant and what does it look like? So if you will, pray with me because here's what... I know is probably true is a lot of times you're like, man, court, uh, a lot going on in my life. Why don't you give me something practical? Like, you know, seven keys to a better prayer life or something. I need that. Like why on the church? I'm here right now. You're kind of preaching to the choir, right? And here's what I want to say to you. The church is not just a, a good idea, but it's in the local church that Jesus says that we're the hope of the world, the salt of the earth, Right? So when we start talking about the church, we're not just going to be giving uh, practical answers to specific problems. We're going to be talking about the, the answers to all of the problems because the church is rooted in Jesus Christ. So let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray for us. Lord, I want to start by just lifting up our brothers and sisters in El Paso, Texas, Dayton, Ohio. Um, Lord, we live in a, a nation and a world that is broken by sin. God, we, we, we're brokenhearted for the families who have lost their loved ones, their children, moms and dads, brothers and sisters. Due to senseless acts of violence, Lord, 
And as your people, we would be remiss if we didn't just run to you first and just ask for your healing hands in those communities and in those lives and in those families. So we do, God, would you heal them? Would you bring comfort? Would you bring peace? And in the midst of an outraged culture that there's a lot of opportunity for division, God, I just, I just ask for your, your hope and your peace to be residing on these towns, on these families, on these leaders, on these politicians, on these people that make decisions that are very significant. And ultimately, Lord, we also just rest in you being our king and our Lord. And that you have all authority, and we're just so grateful for that, God. And maybe most importantly, we just say, Jesus, come quickly. We look forward to you making right what has gone wrong. We don't have the answers, but you do. And Lord, secondarily, as we sit here in this particular place, in this particular time, I just ask that you would help us to make sense of why it's important that we be your church, and at the gates of hell, you have promised, will never prevail against your church. Help us to see in your word that the church is not merely a byword. The church is not merely a place where we come together to sing platitudes and euphemisms and to say nice things, but God, that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth, the household of God, the hope of the world. God, would you give us that inclination that our lives should be devoted to each other and most of all, my God, to you and your glory. And so we just ask for your help. Holy Spirit, be with us, challenge us, shape us, form us, encourage us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Paul starts off in Ephesians, and he's going to tell us that the church is the household of God. So as the Anglican priest, Nikki Gumbel says, the church is not an organization to join, but it's a family to belong to. But the question becomes, how does that household come into being though? So like, how does that family start? And the answer is, and point number one, if you're taking notes, is that the church is a family that is saved by the grace of Jesus. The church is a family that is saved by the grace of Jesus. Now we started, uh, Eric read, starting in verse 17. I'm gonna briefly walk you through verses one through 16, and I do mean briefly, because that's the context through which you jump into Paul's talking about the church. We can't understand the church unless we understand how the church comes into being. So let's start in verse one, chapter number two. You probably don't have to turn anywhere, and they'll kick it up behind the screen. This is what Paul says to the Ephesian church, this local family that lives in Ephesus. He says this to them, and you, that's a you collective, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirits that, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Now watch this turn in verse four. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, that means your works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus 
for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul, first of all, lays out this, this panorama that all of mankind stands at enmity with God, that we are at war with God and dead in our trespasses, but God, because he loves us so much, takes dead bodies like ours dead, and raises us to life again with him, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his grace. And that that's the gospel. That the gospel message is not, now hear me on this, I know that we're in the Bible Belt, so you really got to open your ears. The Bible message is not, hey, you should clean up and then come to God and get your life in order. The Bible message is, you can't clean up, Jesus died for you so that you can, by faith, be with him forever. That's a much different message, right? And, and we live in a culture that tells the opposite message. And if you ask, I would say 60, maybe 70% of your neighbors, if they're Christians, yes, tell me the gospel. And what is going to actually give you eternal life? Well, I love Jesus and I'm trying to be a pretty good person. Those things, although congruent, are not the reason that we have eternal life. There's only one reason we have eternal life. His name is Jesus Christ. His works alone, his righteousness alone, his grace alone, his mercy alone. It's a singular movement, the gospel is. And then God prepares good works beforehand that we would walk in them. And that's the outworking of what Jesus alone has done. Not the reason that we have eternal life. You guys walking with this? Paul's very clear about this in this text. The church is a family of people that were brought together, not on our own will, but by God's mercy and grace and love for us. That's why we're all here together. That's why we can call each other, and sometimes in weird ways, brother and sister, right? Right? Some of you walked in, hey, how you doing today, brother? You know, that's brother John, you know, whatever. Why do you say that kind of language? Because it's a family brought together singularly by the grace of God, not because we just wised up and decided, hey, I have kids, I had kids now, so I should probably come to church. Now, hear me on this. If you're here right now, and that's the decision that you made, I'm so glad you're here. I really am. I am so glad that you're here and you thought, you know what, my kids need church, my, I, I wanna come. I'm so glad that you're here. Here's what I wanna tell you though, is that ultimately it's not our good decisions that can help us meet the mark to have eternal life with God. Because of sin, you and I, if we were to try to meet the mark on our own, no matter how far we would actually get towards that mark, both of us would fail. You and me both. And Jesus did everything that needed to be done for us to have eternal life. He already met the mark for us on our behalf. And so even though you may be here for that, I'm so glad that you're here. My prayer is that you would see that you could never earn what is unearnable. In the family of God, the people of God, you're not sitting amongst people that think, yeah, I wised up a long time ago. Glad you wised up too. No, you're sitting among a bunch of people prayerfully that say, we found out there is no way we could have ever done this thing. We were dead on the bottom of the ocean. We had a scuba diver named Jesus that went down to the bottom floor, picked us up, took us out on the, on the beach and started to resuscitate us by his grace and mercy. That's what the family of God is. Now, now Paul is going to go on here, and he's not just going to talk about how we are saved, but watch what he starts to do in verse 11. There starts to be this interpersonal talk about us. Now, you already get in the Greek when he said you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's not a singular you. That's a plural you in the Greek because he's talking about us. But just in case you miss it, watch what he does in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that would be the Ephesians, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that would be the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, plural, who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, man is plural, one new person, one new people, one new family in the place of two. So making peace. 
and he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Okay, what's Paul doing here? He's starting to talk about this this vision from Jesus, not to save us individually, but this vision from Jesus to save for himself a people. And Paul, particularly in his day, is talking a lot about Jew and Gentile. And it's because in the early church, they had these people from totally different backgrounds trying to come together. Now they're the one people of God. That God's original plan from the Old Testament was to have a people for himself, that Israel was a typology of what the church would be. That when you look at Israel in the Old Testament, you see the people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this great nation, that that's a typifying the church, the true Israel that would come, everybody who believes upon the name of Jesus, and that would include Gentile and Jew. And so Paul's saying that not only does, does God make peace and bring us to himself and save us and rescue us, but he brings us together as a family. Now, briefly, I want to talk about this language that Paul uses here that seems to be like war language. Like we're at enmity, we're at hostility. And I think that he's, he's hinting at something, and I don't want to spend too much time here, but it's really important. I think he's hinting at something that you and I could probably jive with if you just are willing to admit that we live in a culture and we live in a world that you and I are at war and within ourselves. We, are at, we feel like we are at war with each other. And there seems to be kind of this combatant feel. Now, I don't know if you guys have watched the news, but doesn't it feel as though we're just fighting a lot? Like there seems to be some interpersonal conflict. That's a euphemism, by the way, in our culture, right? A little bit of infighting, a little bit of hostility. And how many of you have lived long enough to realize that there's kind of a war within yourself? Like Paul explained it like this. I do the things that I don't want to do, and the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing, right? If I want to do right, I do bad. If I don't want to do bad, I end up doing bad. He says, and I don't know, there's a war within my members. Have you lived long enough to realize that there are times where you do things that deep down you don't want to do, and yet we say that we're just after the pursuit of, uh, you know, our culture says if you just pursue whatever you want, that that's the freedom we're trying to give you, and yet all of us acknowledge that we, don't, we do things that we really don't want to do deep down. There's a war in us. There's a battle intrinsically that we, we don't know why, but we tend to be pulled a certain way. I love that Paul, and he follows the model of Jesus, he never addresses the war that you think you're having outside. So sometimes, this is how it might look. You're having a bad day, and you say, well, it's the Democrats' fault. That's why I'm having a bad day. Dang it, Obama, right? Or on the flip side, if you're, if you're a Democrat, you say, man, you know I'm having a bad day because Trump's president, that orange man. It's his fault. If he wasn't such a, you know, you fill in the blank, everything would be better, Right? Or you might say, you know why, uh, you know why things are bad? Because my boss is a jerk. That's why. My boss is a jerk. They're always on my case. It's just, you know, that's why I'm really struggling in life. Or you know why things are hard? Because my wife, if you were married to my wife, things would be tough for you too. My kids never listen. Look at them over there. And then you yell their name. They don't even look. See what I mean? And so what we think is that things are wrong because of all of the interpersonal factors in our lives. And so what we're hoping for is that someone, this is why I think politics is so powerful in our day, is we're all looking for a politician to step in and mix it, fix it and make it right. And yet we know deep down that isn't going to be the answer. And Jesus in his day, here's what you need to know. Jesus lived in a politically charged day. Don't ever think that your day is more politically charged than Christ's day. He lived with Caesar Augustus as a Roman emperor. He lived with Pilate overseeing his nation. He lived in a time that it was way crazier, way more unjust. It was absolutely it's unfathomable the type of context and culture that Jesus entered into. And you know how often he talks about politics? It's like rare if ever. If ever. 
You think if Jesus is trying to go the political route in order to save the world, he would have gone to Rome. Doesn't do it. That he would have went and immediately talked to Herod or Pilate. The only time he talks to Herod and Pilate is when they want to kill him and he, he shuts his mouth. He won't even answer them. Why? Jesus and Paul follows the same model as when he starts to talk about this enmity, this warring that's happening inside of us and outside of us. They almost never address that. They say the real issue is that we're at war with God. They almost never address the enmity that we have inside of ourselves. They almost never address the enmity that we have outside with others until they say, first and foremost, we have to fix this. And so Paul is saying here, the church is a family that Christ has done everything to reconcile us here first. And then everything begins to work its way out here. Now, here's the thing. We don't live necessarily in a war culture. Um, I mean, a physical war culture, you know, our our grandparents uh, fighting in World War II, some of your parents maybe in Vietnam, uh, and some of you in here probably maybe have that, but for the most part, you know, young people growing up, they don't have that. And so the war most, mostly manifests itself in this constant pursuit to get something that'll fill the gaping hole in our lives. I read this article legitimately last night as I was putting the final uh, notes in for my sermon, and I just thought it was so telling of our day. I want to read this to you, and I'm not uh, ripping on this guy. Uh, most of us, we, we benefit from his business. But most of you know the guy Jeff Bezos from Amazon. He's the CEO of Amazon. Um, so I read this article and I just thought, this is so telling about our inner war with what we think we want and what we actually get. Uh, this is the, the article. It says, Bezos has used his money to buy everything from a $65 million jet to an $80 million New York City penthouse and, to a 42, and also a $42 million clock. Yes, a clock. But his most offensively extravagant purchase, the Flying Fox mega yacht that is reportedly worth $400 million. According to A News, the 136-meter long vessel was built by a shipping company in 2019. The luxury boat comes with a swimming pool, 11 cabins, a cinema, two helipads, and a two-deck spa that includes a gym, sauna, and massage area. (laughs) I read that and I thought, and listen, I'm not ripping on this guy because here's the truth. We would all want that if we had Bezos money, wouldn't we? What does it speak to, though? It's like you, you finally get to the top of this thing where you thought if I could get all of this money, then that's going to fill this, this war, this enmity that I have churning in my own soul. And you think, what should I do with my money? You start buying extravagant things. I'm going to buy a clock that's worth $42 million. I don't even know what that looks like. How, if it were me, how often do you think he just sits in front of that clock drinking coffee and just looking at it? Takes pictures by it for Instagram, you know? What do you do with it? At what point was he starting to realize there's still something going on here? I don't feel satisfied. What will I do? Mm, $400 million boat on you know, a hotel on the ocean. There we go. I'll just buy myself a cruise ship. That's you and that's me with a much, much lower budget, isn't it? And Jesus steps in and basically says, I'm going to make peace in your heart. Jesus, these analogies that we find in the stories of the Gospels where Jesus steps into the boat and there's storms everywhere and he walks in and says, peace, be still. That's what Christ has done to our hearts to make us the church. We become a family because every single one of us have prayerfully had an experience with Christ that he steps into that war that's waging within us. He makes peace with God. He makes peace with others and he makes peace within ourselves that we now have Christ and therefore we have everything that we've ever really needed. So to say that we belong to the church is not really for us to be making a statement about our decision to sign a document with Brendan in a new members class, right? To say that we belong to a church is first and foremost to say that we all have been adopted and saved by Jesus into a new family. And that Jesus was so committed to this family that he was willing to die for it. 
Okay, number two, what else is the church? Paul goes on, the church is a family of diverse strangers that have been welcomed by the goodness of Jesus. Now we'll start in verse 17 where Eric kicked us off. So he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. So Jesus comes and he, and he preaches peace to those who are near and peace to those who are far off. Now, let me tell you what it means in this particular context, and then let me hopefully help us apply it to our context. In this context, Paul looks at the Ephesian church, which is primarily Gentile, and says, you grew up in a culture that didn't acknowledge God, at least the God who is, because you were far off. You were way far off, serving many pagan gods all over the place, all over the map. And Jesus came, and he went all the way from the ends of the earth, and he preached peace to you to bring you back into the family. And then he said, and some of your Jewish brothers, which would have been a minority in the Ephesian church, he says, some of your Jewish brothers who may struggle with self-righteousness, they were just on the outside, but trying to save themselves. And Jesus went right outside the house into the backyard and said, peace be still, and brought them back into the family. The best analogy and parable that we've been given is the story of the prodigal son, which is really a parable of two sons. You have one where the prodigal son goes off on his own to squander his father's wealth, and he's very, very far from his dad. And when he's welcomed back into the family of God, and the father grabs him, hugs him, kisses him, says, you're forgiven, son, puts a ring on his hand, puts a robe around his shoulders, and says, we're going to throw a party because my lost son is back. The older brother who's been there the entire time stands on the outside of the house with his arms crossed and says, I've been here the whole time. You never threw a party for me. And in the parable, Jesus looks to the Jews and the Pharisees and says, he didn't know it, but the older brother was lost in the house the whole time. And Paul is saying that Jesus came to enter into a world where whether you were born on the altar or whether you were born in the midst of sin with parents who did not honor God, that Jesus come and comes and preaches peace to those who are near and those who are far off. There are some of you here who you were literally born into the baptismal and came out worshiping, okay? That's you. You know, your parents, you did Awanas, you know, you used to have badges. You looked like a general with your sashes, you know? And, and then those, there, <laughs> there are those of you who are a little bit more like me, and you didn't have that at all, and that basically the only reason that you're not dead or in jail is the grace of God, and you're here. And the church is this family of diverse strangers who have been welcomed into the household of God together. And, and I use those words, diverse strangers, not just that we were strangers and aliens from God, but that right here, right now, under the sound of my voice, tons of different backgrounds are represented, even in this room. Tons of different worldviews. It's no different than what uh, Paul is trying to address with the Ephesian church. There's a ton of different worldviews in the Ephesian church. The, 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 the city of Ephesus would have been a hub for a ton of different ideas coming in. And here we are right now, many of us come from uh, your parents that taught different ideas, and so what tends to happen is you all come together, and maybe, just maybe, there's conflict there. Maybe, right? In the Bible, Jesus calls his disciples to himself, and there's, it's a big moment, right? Uh, in the Gospels, it's a big moment where they all sit down, and people have been following Jesus, but now Jesus is going to call to himself his 12. And I will just say that if it were me, I would have called a different crew, 
I'll just give you a few of them and just show you what he's setting himself up for. If you've ever been a business leader or if you've ever you know, picked teams for a basketball pickup game or anything and you get to choose the people that are gonna be on your team, what is one of the most important things you probably are looking for? Like talent's there, right? That talent's important, competency, but compatibility maybe? Like you don't wanna be in the middle of the basketball game and two of your teammates are fighting and you're like, what the heck, right? Jesus starts to call his people and he says, I wanna get a Matthew, the tax collector, come. John, Jewish boy, come. Good Jewish religious boy, right? Come. Simon, the zealot, you come. That's just three. Now let me talk a little bit about what that would mean. Matthew, the tax collector, would have been a national sellout who had basically agreed with the oppressors in Rome to harm the Jewish people. Tax collectors were considered scum of the day. They had kind of banded together with the people who were oppressing the Jews. They did not like them. Jesus says, you're gonna be one of my boys. Then he looks to John, who would have not, not liked this guy at all. He says, you, you come. But John would have not only not liked him, but then he turns over here and says, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots are the guys that not only do they not like what the Romans are doing, but they're trying to start insurrection. They're trying to build militias. You guys ever met these people? Right? They're just kind of like plotting and scheming. That's Simon the Zealot. He's like, things are bad, and we're going to fix it. You have him, you have John, and you have Matthew, a tax collector, and he says, these are just three. Now, I didn't even add in Peter, okay, which is a whole other bag of tricks, the fisherman, right? And he says, these are going to be my boys. These are going to be the ones that later on, he says, on the, on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that he's going to build his church. These guys. Now I want to ask this question. How in the world do you think these guys ate together, slept in the same campgrounds together, read scripture together, ministered together, joked around the same fires, maybe even shared the same tent? Could you imagine the tent with Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot? I mean, that's dangerous, first of all. How'd they get along? There's only one answer to that question, and it would be the goodness of Jesus was present with them. Because it is Jesus alone that can bond people together from those kind of diverse backgrounds. So check this out. In our context, let me pose this to you. It's not a wonder that the church that is so full of all kinds of different people from different backgrounds and different experiences, it's not, we should not wonder why occasionally we argue we're frustrated, there's strife, there's disappointment, there's misunderstanding, there's anger, and even gossip. In fact, I would say it's not baffling that it occasionally happens. It's baffling that we're shocked when it does because that's called relational dysfunction. You brought a bunch of sinners saved by grace, but that still occasionally fall back into their old identity together and said, do life together. And not just do life together as an organization, but do life together as a family. Now, I don't know about you, but you don't get to choose your family. Have you guys noticed this yet on Thanksgiving? You looked around, you're like, wait a minute. If I got to choose the crew that I'm hanging out, this would not be them, right? Anybody else at Thanksgiving, you, know, you got your weird cousin, your weird uncle, and they sit down, and you're like, man, I thought they would skip Thanksgiving. And somebody here right now is like, no, don't have a weird cousin. <laughs> you might be that guy. Anyway, <laughs> 
You don't get to choose your family. The people of God is the same way. I remember when I first came to know Christ, my first church experience, joined an internship. First time I get together with all the interns that are gonna be committing themselves to a discipleship year and we start to talk about our, our, our dreams. And so everybody starts to share about what they're dreaming, what they're hoping from the full year. I almost left crying, listening to, I didn't even know what to do. I thought I ruined my life. I ruined my life following Jesus. That's what I thought. I had been set up to go to a certain college and, and I basically denied all that in order to stay at a local church and do an internship that had zero experience. I mean, it literally was one of the most dumb things worldly to do. Sit down, what are your dreams? I kind of share what my dreams are. Next person stands up. Uh, I just want three spiritual gifts. I want to teleport. I'm not kidding. I want to teleport. I want to walk on water. I want to fly. And it's not like I'm joking, ha because I started laughing and I got shot a darting look. I'm like, this can't be serious. <laughs> Proceeds to go through the scriptures where that maybe that already happened in the book of Acts. So potentially that's what I'd be able to, you know, harness my Superman abilities. And I'm thinking, Jesus comes in and says, you're going to hang out with your brother. I'm like, that is not my, that's not him, you know. Next person, very tall, six foot seven, skinny, uh, white guy says, I want to be the next T.D. Jakes, and is not kidding. I, this, I'm not making this up. This is not a comedy routine. That's my life. And I remember sitting around thinking, this can't be serious. It's that kind of weird, diverse, and, and listen, if you're in a home group, you've already experienced this. Like someone came in that you would have never befriended. Someone walked in that you, if you saw them on the street, you would have decided to go on the other side of the street, right, in order to walk in just to be safe. And yet Jesus is calling you to love, care for, and have kind of a familial love for that person. I think that Jesus could have found a number of reasons to bail on his disciples. I mean, let me, let me ask this question. Is it plausible that maybe Jesus, coming from heaven and all, had different beliefs than his disciples? Possibly. Like when they were sitting around doing their uh, in, inductive Bible study, that when Peter chimes in with like the Old Testament and his thoughts on it, that Jesus might have been like, <laughs> maybe, right? Is it, <laughs> I think about those conversations. Maybe Jesus had different opinions on like, I don't know, Jewish culture than they did or different thoughts on the Roman government. I don't know, just a possibility. Like Jesus could have bailed on these guys, right? And can we all agree that Jesus could have accomplished Maybe more without them. Like there's sometimes where Jesus is about to try to do something. Peter goes, no. And it's like really important, like the cross. Don't do it, Jesus. You know, it's like, and, and yet Jesus continues to bear with them, engage with them. And that's the family of God is this people who are committed not to being right not committed to their own ideals, not committed to their own opinions, not committed to expressing them at all costs, committed to the goodness of Jesus, bound together to the gospel of Jesus, which is what binds us in love. The church is meant to be this diverse group. Check this out. Because that diverse group reflects the heart of God. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you see that every tribe, nation, and tongue is represented, worshiping around the throne. If we do not have a diverse vision for the church. We do not have God's vision for the church. If we only want people with our ideology, only people with our race, skin color, tone, background, socioeconomic background, we don't have God's vision for the church. We have our own vision for wanting to be around people that make us feel comfortable, 
But God's not in the business of us feeling comfortable. God's in the business of saving people. God's in the business of building his family. God's in the business of building a diverse family of God-glorifying, God-worshiping, God-exalting saints for his household. And that includes us getting over ourselves and looks like dying to ourselves. Okay, last thing, and then we'll close out. Point number three, what else is the church? The church is a family of desperate sojourners established on the gospel of Jesus. The church is a family of desperate sojourners established on the gospel of Jesus. Paul ends it like this. The church is built on the foundation, verse 20, of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul says that the church is meant to be a people, so a family, and in 1 Timothy 3.15, he calls the church a pillar and buttress of truth. People and pillar. So let's walk through this. People, we've already talked about, means family. What's this pillar analogy? You look it up in the Greek, pillar and buttress, it basically means a support, that the church is meant to be a support of the truth. Now, I think we need to parse this out because can we agree the gospel doesn't need our help to be true? Jesus doesn't need our help, support to be true? No. But that Jesus designed the church that we would be a, a lighthouse for the truth. We were, look, we were called to uphold the gospel of truth to a whole watching world. That's what the church is meant to be. A family, a beacon of light for the world. But then Paul right here is gonna say that that building, that, that pillar, that beacon of light is built on a foundation. Guess what that foundation is? He says the apostles and the prophets, Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, I don't have tons of time, but for the sake of time, I'll give you the, the Cliff Notes version. When he says the apostles and the prophets, this is Paul using shorthand for the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, right? The, the Old Testament would have been considered the prophets, the law and the prophets. You go from Moses, where Genesis starts, all the way through to the major and minor prophets. That's the Old Testament. And then he says the apostles. That would be all of the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Even at Paul's time, they were writing these things and they were considering them scripture. So he says the church is built upon this truth. But then he says this, not just the written word, but what's the cornerstone? The living word, Jesus. So, so what do we have on, in our foyer right now? We say, Providence Community Church exists to what? To make the gospel unignorable in our city. In other words, we're just echoing what Paul says here. We're a pillar of the gospel. We just stand here and we hold up a light and we say, this is Jesus. And we do that with our whole lives. Not a place, but a people. Everywhere we go, we hold up the gospel as true. And we shine the gospel to everyone that will see it in the dark. We say, here is the gospel. We want to make it unignorable. We want to be not just a signpost. We want to be a fork in the road for people. Here's Jesus in the gospel. But what are we rooted on? We're rooted on the gospel. Now, that may sound confusing and circular, but let me say it like this. The church is the pillar holding up the gospel for all to see, but if the church ever forsakes the gospel as the foundation, it will erode. And in the end, what's meant to be a pillar will be just a bunch of scattered, rotted stones. The very thing we're called to uphold is the very thing that holds us up. And if we forsake what holds us up, then we crumble to the ground. This is one of the only analogies where Paul speaks about the church and it seems like he's talking about a place, but he's really talking about a people. We're a dwelling place for God's spirit. That's what the church is. So let me end it with this. There's a reason we gather and we do community and home groups. It's because the Christian cannot fulfill his or her purpose alone. 
the church cannot fulfill her purpose as a mere empty meeting space. Because this is not the church. The building that we're in is not the church. The church is a family built for a purpose of being a home for God's presence. That's what Paul uses this analogy of us being the temple of God, that when we are saved, when we are welcomed, when we are rescued by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And when we are together, there's this unique thing that happens that God's with us. That's why Jesus says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. And when we're together, there starts to happen this this odd and spiritually supernatural thing. You know what's, what's great about providence? It's not the preaching, it's not the worship, it's not the coffee. I thank you for the coffee. Thank you, Jenna. It's that God is uniquely with his people. And that where we are, there Jesus is in the midst of us. And if that ever were to not be true, then we should just close the doors because there's nothing really unique about us. We're just like a rotary club. But when the Lord is with us, Moses knew this. It's why he told God when they were walking through the desert, he said, I don't want to go anywhere unless you're with us. That's what makes us unique. When we get together, God is present. And it's in the presence of Jesus that's been made possible by the blood of Jesus that we look for God's hand among us. We listen for God's voice among us. And we worship God's name together. And so I just want to ask you, have you sensed his presence this morning with us? Or maybe have you looked for it? Have you, have you, have you looked for it? How about this? If Jesus is willing to die for his church, what potentially could he be looking for from us? Like what might he call us to do that we would say that's too much? Here's what I know about the church. Saved people long to see people saved. Welcomed people long to welcome people into the family of God and established people who finally have found their footing in a world that has gone awry, love to see other people stop searching, stop falling, stop tripping, and find an anchor in Jesus Christ. And so here's what I pray for us, Providence, is that we would want that, we'd long for that, and that in seven years, really nothing has changed, but I pray that the fire burns more strongly, that we not only want to see the church of the living God be this, but we wanna see more, more local expressions of this, so much so that we would give to it, that we would fight for it, that we would serve for it, that we would sacrifice for it because ultimately it's not about us, it's about the glory of God and the good of people. And that somehow in the midst of that, in the midst of our sacrifice, that what Jesus promised, we would get joy. We would get gladness. We would get peace. And lastly, if this morning you, you have not trusted in Jesus for salvation, you wouldn't consider yourself a part of the household of God. I just want to make this wonderful and hopefully sinful invitation. Would you come and trust Jesus, not yourself, for eternal life? What are you hanging your life on to be with God forever? My prayer for you is that it wouldn't be your own works, it would be Jesus. It's a very simple exchange. And my prayer is that you would trust Jesus this morning. He's a wonderful Savior. If nothing else, my prayer is that you would consider Christ. He is more tender. He is more good. He is more loving. He is more caring. He is more kind than I'll ever be. And that's really why we're all here. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us.
God, thank you that your church is a glorious vision. Thank you that all of us who have invested time and talents and treasure, all of us who have prayed and longed for, and that it's not in vain, God, it's purposeful. And for my friends under the sound of my voice, that maybe it's their first time, maybe they've just been invited my prayers, that they would feel the love that comes from you through the church, through the people that are here, that you are calling out to them, you're reaching out to them, my God. I pray they'd feel that drawing of your spirit to not try to rely on themselves, but to trust you and you alone for life. And God, we pray, would you make us into people that long to see others rescued? Make us into a people who long to see others welcomed. Make us into a people who long to see others established in a world that has gone completely awry. And may we not look at that world with judgment or condemnation, but may we look at it with the eyes of mercy because we too have been. And may we engage, may we live, may we love. Jesus, glorify your name. Glorify your name through your church. In Jesus' name, amen.